You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 22nd of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. They rather work together, try to maybe govern well for a few years and see if when the election will come, the situation has changed. Political leaders in Italy meet with the president to see if a coalition might be mustered or it's a snap election. My guests Enrico Franceschini and Stephen Diel will discuss that and the day's other news, including... Any sensible, reasonably sensible European politician looking at that ought to say, look what's happened, look, look, you know, they're, in, they're in chaos. They haven't been able to concentrate on things that really matter. Brexit is a bore, but has it even managed to put off Europe's Eurosceptics? And how far is too far, we ask if the world's longest flight path is all a bit much. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Stephen Diel, Russia analyst, and Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. And let's start in Italy, where President Sergio Mattarella has today been meeting the country's increasingly rancorous political leaders in a bid to spare Italians from having to interrupt their holidays to vote in a snap election. The present shambles has been caused by the effective withdrawal of the right-wing populist Lega Party from their always unlikely governing coalition with the left-wing populist Five Star Party. The meeting's president. Mattarella has been holding are intended to see if there is another combination of parties in Italy's parliament which might be assembled into a majority. So Enrico, is this going to work? And if it does, what is the likeliest coalition? It looks like it's going to work. And the likeliest coalition is between the five stars and the Democratic Party, the former Communist Party of Italy, the leftist uh, uh, faction. And uh, uh, they have been trying in the past, these two, to get together, um, but uh, they were competing for the same uh, votes, and so it never worked. Now, they, why they want to, to form this coalition? Because the polls and the recent European elections showed that if we go to an early election, the league will win by far. So they rather work together, try to maybe govern well for a few years and see if when the election will come, the situation has changed. But just to follow that up, on the face of it, they do actually seem a likelier pairing than Five Star and Lega ever did, who didn't really seem to have much in common aside from the fact that they basically hated the entire political establishment even more than they hated each other. But why hasn't the Five Star Democratic Party thing come together before? What are the points of difference between them? Well, the Five Stars is a more populist organisation, a movement It was founded, as you may remember, by a comedian. <laughs> a very popular comedian, Beppe Grillo in Italy, who used to do shows on TV and in theatres. And at first they gained support from both the right and the left. So, yes, they are more of considered leftist, of course, uh, if, compared with the league, with the league, but um, they were much different from the Democratic Party. Now, it's not sure that this marriage of uh, interests will work, of course, because they have uh, hated each other for several years, uh, said terrible things to one another. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if the government is born and we'll see what happens now long. Their plan is to go to the end of the legislature, so until 2023. 
Stephen, on the face of it, if if it does shake out as Enrico has suggested, it would appear that Matteo Salvini and Lega have actually rather played themselves by breaking up this government to try and force an election and therefore govern in their own right. Is it actually possible, or am I possibly trying too hard, that what Matteo Salvini and Lega actually want is a certain period grumbling in sanctimonious, betrayed opposition that they can thereby build uh, that, you know, persecution complex which is so much a part of their narrative and take greater power at a later date? They wouldn't be the only um, populist party to do that sort of thing. Um, I was amused to hear Enrico talk about a government possibly lasting years. I remember, I think it was 30 years after the Second World War, Italy had already had 43 governments. Um, <laughs> we have 63 now. We have had 63. Uh, Your turn must be coming up, Enrico. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> but... No, this idea, I mean, that, that, of course, would suit, it seems to me, would suit Salvini very well if, you know, if there is chaos, if the, it, assuming that this new grouping of Five Star and, and Democratic Party comes together and, and if they can't work out a, a, a marriage that works and there's more chaos and there, there's more disruption... To my mind, that seems to suit Salvini very well for him to say, look, you see, the you see, I'm the person you need, my party's the one you need. Um, and particularly, as, as Enrico mentioned, they, they didn't do badly recently and they're, they're, there is a, a wave of popular support for the populist party. Um, so, you know, that, that more chaos seems to suggest earlier general elections seems to suggest uh, that works in Salvini's favour. I mean, en- Enrico, if this coalition is going to come together and if President Mattarella is not, in fact, going to call upon you to lead a new government, and I, I think we can all agree that Italy could do worse and, in fact, usually does, but who is likely to be the next Prime Minister of Italy? And by which I think I'm asking on behalf of our international listeners, please reassure us that somehow it's not going to be Silvio Berlusconi. No, he's not. He's not <laughs> well, also- Something. It is something already. It's already progress. Is is uh, as you might know. Have they come back? Because he's now a MP in the European Parliament. That is more than eight years old, but uh, he can do maybe less damage from far away. Now the interesting thing is, I mentioned we have had sixty-three or sixty-four prime ministers since the war. Now who's counting? All men. Now the interesting thing is, there are talks that for the first time in Italy's history you might have a woman. A technocrat uh, possibly could be, um, her name is Cardona, is a judge in the Constitutional Court, so a figure above politics, so to speak, that can unite these two forces of more or less uh, of the left, but could send a signal of uh, something new, which would be welcomed in a country that uh, has not changed very much um, in, compared to others. Um, Stephen, there is a Russia-related scandal simmering beneath Italian politics and especially simmering beneath uh, the Lega Party. Uh, What do we know for sure about their links with Russia? So far, I mean, it doesn't look good, but do we know whether or not it's actually bad? Unfortunately, this is one of these nailing jelly to a ceiling uh, (laughs) type of questions. Um, There are clearly links, there's discussions. Um, I mean, it's it's rather like the the question was with Marine Le Pen in uh, in France. And it took a long time until finally documents were were revealed to say, yeah, she had actually taken money from the Russians. Um, But it's... we know, uh, we know also, well, one thing we know for sure is that it would suit Putin to have 
more chaos and to have more populist uh, influence in in any European country. That that is one of his aims. His aim is to is to disrupt European politics as much as possible. So he likes people like Salvini. I mean, we mentioned Berlusconi earlier. I mean, Berlusconi is a big friend of Putin's. If anyone can be considered a friend of Putin's, um, and people who cause trouble, people who rock the boat. That suits Putin. So I can't sit here and say, yes, definitely, you know, I I have no documentary evidence to say that there's anything underhand going on. But the rumours are certainly there and it wouldn't surprise me if something comes to light to prove it. Enrico, how much traction has this story got in Italy and has has it damaged Salvini and Lega at all? Well, there is a lot of talk about this, but it didn't damage Salvini. And the reason is that in Italy... Political parties always got money from abroad. You know, the Christian Democrats got uh, suitcases of money from the United States during the Cold War because they were, you know, the bastion against communism. And the Communist Party used to get a lot of rubles uh, from <laughs> Moscow. And this came out in the open. So it's something that the, the, our countrymen, unfortunately, are used to and they take it for granted up to a point. Of course... If a smoking gun came out showing it, now this could damage uh, Salvini. But Italy being Italy and Russia being Russia, maybe we may never know exactly what was. Stephen Diel and Enrico Franceschini there. We will be back in just a minute. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been holding Brexit talks with Emmanuel Macron in Paris. The French president said the UK's vote to leave the EU must be respected, but added that the Irish backstop plan was indispensable to preserving political stability and the single market. Brazil's Environment Minister Ricardo Celis has been heckled at a public meeting over the record number of fires in the Amazon. Data published by the National Institute for Space Research shows an increase of 84% this year for all of Brazil. Monocle's Lucinda Elliott sent this report from Sao Paulo. Wildfires often occur during the dry season in Brazil, um, but they're also deliberately started in efforts to illegally deforest land for cattle ranching, logging and the like. And we've had more than 74,000 fires that have been detected in Brazil since the start of this year, mostly in the Amazon Basin region, um, and that's the highest number since the Brazilian Space Agency started collecting data, but also in other parts of Brazil and, and other areas in the LATAM region. But the latest figures, you know, broadly confirm firm and reiterate concerns that basically under President Bolsonaro, illegal miners and farmers are, are involved in a, a free-for-all land grab, basically devastating large areas of the forest to make way for their business ventures. And all of this has been exacerbated in recent months precisely because of the sort of atmosphere Bolsonaro is accused of, of cultivating when it comes to the rainforest since he took office in January. Lucinda Elliott in Sao Paulo. Some of Hong Kong's biggest banks have published full-page newspaper advertisements calling for the preservation of law and order in the city. The move by HSBC, Standard Chartered and Bank of East Asia suggests the sector is worried that violent clashes will cause long-term damage to Hong Kong's economy. And the airline Qantas has announced that it will run test services of its planned 19-hour flights to determine whether passengers and crew can withstand the lengthy journeys. The airline wants to operate non-stop services from Sydney to London and New York by 2022. That's the day's news. Back to you, Andrew. 
Ben Rylan, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Enrico Franceschini and Stephen Diel. Now, while the political chaos in Italy is remarkable, it's not that remarkable by the standards of recent Italian history, which occasionally threatened something more chaotic still. Recent years have seen a certain amount of speculation, wishing and or threatening that Italy could withdraw from the euro or even the EU itself. Right-wing populist parties elsewhere, notably Poland and Hungary, have emitted similar mutterings. But only the UK has so far attempted to go through with it. And so far, at least, Brexit has provided little in the way of encouragement to follow such a path. Um, Stephen, is it arguable that Brexit has actually dampened Euroscepticism elsewhere in Europe? It looks like it. Um, and those of us who are living through this mess that is called Brexit um, won't be surprised by it because, I mean, it, it, you know, it is absolutely farcical. And I mean, I find myself literally waking up every morning, turning on the news and, and thinking, well, actually, I should turn it off because, you know, there's more nonsense spoken by our now prime minister. And uh, then the, the, um, there's a certain uh, radio program that many middle class people in this country listen to in the mornings um, run by an organization called the BBC and then people are wheeled out, politicians wheeled out. Um, and I find myself constantly swearing at the radio, actually, which is, uh, you know, the, 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 there is such chaos. There is, it, is, it has been handled so badly. And uh, many of us could see this. Many of us said back in 2016, why, why, A, why are we having a referendum? B, why is it so simple? Yes, no. And C, if it does go no, um, you know, no to staying in the European Union, it is going to cost so much time and money. What, what this is one of the things I regret most of all is that so much of my and other taxpayers' money has been spent on this, but also the time that Parliament has spent when they should have been handling far more urgent social issues. Um, and I think that all that together, any sensible, reasonably sensible European politician looking at that ought to say, look, how much, you know, look what's happened. Look, look, you know, they're, in, they're in chaos. They haven't been able to concentrate on things that really matter. They're spending so much money and, t- and time and effort on this. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy thing, as it's proving, to, to leave the European Union. And we've already had the date put back once. Twice, may, in fact. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, maybe yet again, or else there'll be this, um, you know, driving over a cliff, um, no deal Brexit at the end of October. Uh, I, I would say any, any European looking at this would say, you know, ooh, it's not as easy as we might have thought. Um, maybe we should stay and, and try and try and improve it from within. That's what we should have done in the first place. Uh, Enrico, what's your sense of what the, the Eurosceptic trajectory in Italy has been? Because it is a thing in Italy. There was a poll by the EU last year which found that only 44% of Italians would vote to stay in the EU, which was actually a, a higher number for leave than they managed to find in the UK, which had actually already voted to leave. This is peculiar because Italy used to be one of the more pro-European countries. Mm. And we were very proud when we joined the Euro uh, for two reasons. One, that Italians don't like very much the Italian state. So they like more, you know, their own town. But it's a country very divided. And so they like the sort of uh, having, you know, like a football supporter, support your uh, home team and it's nice to be part of the Champions League, playing the Champions League through the Euro. And so they, they were proud of that. The price, of course, of the Euro was high for um, some low-income uh, families. And, and that's why 
the polls are now showing less support for it. But you were right about saying that Brexit was a good lesson. The Eurosceptic parties now don't don't uh, uh, say anymore like they did a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, we should perhaps leave the European Union. There are talks now in the Salvini's party about leaving the Eurozone, mm. but not in a very clear way. They don't say to leave it to do what and to go where. So we have to be thankful to Britain for that. And possibly after October 31st, if there will be a no-deal Brexit, the lesson will be even harsher. Stephen, what do you think about how the EU has come through this or how the EU looks having come through this? Um, because we've talked a lot about the, the impression it's created in the world of the United Kingdom, which has not been a largely positive one. But... The EU, I guess a similar crisis in some respects, the Greece crisis of a few years ago, was widely perceived to have come across in a quite vindictive, almost petty way towards Greece. Is there any element of that in its dealings with the UK? Or do you think people look at the EU and think, wow, it's been united, it's been purposeful, and it has acted to protect its member, which would have been or will be most vulnerable, i.e. the Republic of Ireland? I'm probably not the most objective person to ask <laughs> on this, um, and I, but I would say that uh, I admire actually the way the EU has behaved, that they have stuck to their guns and they, you know, they've they eventually sort of they come up with this deal and, and then and the way now, you know, we have Boris Johnson now rushing around, well, not quite rushing around Europe, but he's gone to Germany and he's gone to France. And um, Angela Merkel and, and President Macron, have, you know, are basically telling him straight that, um, uh, you know, the deal is there. Um, you know, we've, we've we negotiated. There is no need, I see it, for the European Union to carry on negotiating. The negotiation has been done. Uh, and I think that the, the fact that European Union has, A, shown that it's spoken with one voice and B, you're absolutely right, Defended Ireland. I mean, th this, this, this to me, and in all seriousness, is such madness about um, about Ireland that you know you cannot have uh, a hard border again between Northern Ireland and no. the Republic of Ireland. It is, is going to cause. I I uh, was uh, actually literally on top of an IRA bomb in 19, in London in 1993. So I definitely don't want that sort of thing to return. And that is a definite possibility. If you have this hard border, you, you, even more so, I feel, because Ireland is really going to feel cut off. Um, from from the rest of the European Union as well, um, you know that that is such a dangerous game they're playing, and and I admire the EU for for saying you know no we're not going to abandon Ireland. Ireland is is one of the twenty seven well, at the moment still twenty eight, uh, and and we will stick by them. And and so as I say, perhaps it's a very subjective view, but I would say that the EU has actually handled all this um, pretty impressively. Okay, well let's move along finally on our news panel to Australia which Qantas, for one, hopes to make a slightly less excruciating journey. As things stand London to Sydney or Melbourne can be done in around 24 hours less if you're lucky with tailwinds and layover time. There's usually one stop in the Middle East or Southeast Asia. Qantas wants to do this trip in a single hop. It will take 19 hours, becoming the world's longest passenger flight, overhauling Singapore Airlines' 18-and-a-half-hour Singapore-New York service. Qantas will launch trial flights with Boeing 787-9s later this year, carrying 40 or so passengers who will have their health monitored throughout. Um, Enrico, as 
an Australian living in London, I have done this flight more times than I care to count now. And I'm, I'm still not sure where I am on the great question of is it better to just get it over with as fast as possible by any means possible or take a break? Because there was one flight I did a few years back with Japan Airlines whereby coming back it broke up overnight. So you stayed overnight in an airport hotel in it was either Tokyo or Osaka, I forget which, uh, and then carried on. And on the one hand, obviously, that took a lot longer, but I did feel slightly less like I wished I was dead when I arrived in London. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, the longest flight I took in my life was a flight from uh, uh, New York to Fiji Island with the stopover in Los Angeles when my newspaper sent me to check Forbes Island, the island that the American millionaire, billionaire used to have. Uh, how, how awful for you. What a terribly <laughs> arduous terrible. assignment. It was terrible. But, you know, it was a hard job and someone's <laughs> got to do it. And, uh, and um, my theory is that sometimes long flights are better than short ones. Because I took a short one also thanks to my newspaper once from Moscow to Washington uh, with British Airways. I, was business class, and uh, British Airways offered the... How, how dreadfully you have suffered, Enrique. Yes, this has been humbling The suffering is not over. <laughs> British Airways, uh, once we changed plane in London, offered to take the Concorde to New York. You know, uh, and <laughs> I want to say I was very excited by the Concorde, three hours, but it was very tiny, two seats on the right, two seats on the left, uh, and uh, low ceiling, uh, not a comfortable flight, three hours, not enough time to enjoy it. On the other end, they gave you caviar for lunch, but <laughs> but when I, my my advice is enjoy the ride, enjoy the ride, watch three or four movies, read a book. Nobody bothers you on the telephone. If uh, if you can drive to enjoy the experience of a long flight, uh, Stephen. So Enrico's advice for long haul air travel appears to be basically fly at twice the speed of sound and eat caviar. Um, <laughs> we'll take that under advisement. Do you do you have any tips? Well, I do. Um, in fact, earlier this year, I flew direct from London to Kuala Lumpur and then three weeks later, direct from Singapore back to London. Both times, as I say, direct flights, not, not with a break in the middle. And I, I would recommend it. I mean, they were about 14, 15 hours each. Um, uh, in travelling economy, I hasten to add, um, cheapest seats. Um, but... You know the seats go back. Um, not the best night's sleep I've ever had. Uh, the, to my mind, that the uh, the, the crucial thing is that when you arrive, wherever it is, whichever end, you immediately switch to the time of that day. You don't go to bed unless it's, unless you're arriving at you know ten o'clock at night. Um, you you keep going and then get back into the routine. I had absolutely no jet lag in either direction. And um, in fact, we flew out to the to Southeast Asia with some friends. They came later and they did break their journey and they had a much much harder time. They had four hour stopover in Dubai or somewhere, um, and they found it much more difficult. So. 19 yeah it's it is that bit more but yeah i watched um i watched three films i think as well as getting some sleep reading my book um getting up and walking around a bit ah wearing wearing my long running socks so that uh, you know to try and um stop getting thrombosis or whatever um so you know little tips like that but i know i would go for the the single long flight take a deep breath and get it over with and then once you land get straight into the time of the place that you've arrived at not not to mention that when 
when I flew from New York to <laughs> Fiji Islands, you know, you pass the time zone when the day changes. So I arrived before I left. Hey, I've done that one as well. Los Angeles to Melbourne, I think. It's really, really weird. It makes, it it makes you even more confused. Um, I, I... Do it on your birthday and then you get two birthdays. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Enrico Franceschini and Stephen Diel, thank you both very much. In a moment, we'll be hearing why a nostalgic approach to hobbies might be just what the world needs. You're listening to Monocle's House Views. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Now, while everyone is busy at work, it seems today that leisure time has been colonised by more of the same, as people frantically try to turn a profit with every minute. Monocle's Augustin Machelari asks if it's not time to hark back to the hobbies of a simpler age. In 1952, the owners of Airfix, a toy company, found that they could save on manufacturing costs by selling the components of model tractors customers could do the work of assembling them. The snare was set, and so generations were absorbed in this fastidious craft, navigating the dangers of razors, superglue and lead-based paint in pursuit of a pleasing replica of a ship, train or aeroplane, the latter at its best when hung from the ceiling with string. Others found pleasure in the garden where roses were husbanded, stamps were collected and carefully mounted in books that grew to the thickness of a Bible. Miniature trains chugged therapeutically through tiny landscapes and leisure time was filled with another kind of work. Away from the pressures of the office, people found a renewed appetite for labour on their own terms. Millions of productive hours were rewarded by nothing more or less than satisfaction. This might sound like nostalgia, and that's because it is. But today, the idea of having a hobby is in danger. Dwindling leisure time is colliding with an enthusiasm for turning a profit at every opportunity. A task conducted purely for its own end seems worthless next to the pursuit of self-actualization and, better yet, self-employment. And so the innocence of the hobby has been corrupted to become the side hustle. According to studies, more than a third of 25 to 34-year-olds have one. This is the same cohort that, according to a study by the UK government, enjoys the least amount of downtime of any pre-retirement age group. Having a side hustle might seem like an attractive prospect, but the risks of conflating a hobby and a revenue stream are well documented. Just ask an enthusiastic amateur cook whose dreams of launching a bustling, trendy restaurant curdle faster than hollandaise. Mental health problems are on the rise across the developed world, and hobbies could help. Perhaps it's time to let work end with the workday, and look to the past for lessons in relaxation. Now, pass the glue gun. That was Augustin Machelari, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin and researched by Yolene Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Kenya Scarlett. Coming up at 1900, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Listener.